Amen. You may be seated. Before we turn to God's word this morning, uh, just a couple brief announcements for us. Uh, The first is uh, this evening we have a congregational meeting at 5 p.m. back here at the church. And uh, so if you're a member of Christ Church, uh, we'd encourage you to come. This is our annual uh, budget meeting where we uh, present our, our budget for the um, you know, July to June is our, is our fiscal year, and so as we're uh, starting the year. And uh, we're going to talk about what God has done in uh, this past year and what we're looking forward to in the year ahead. So I would encourage you to come back. Also, if, you're, if you've made Christ Church your home, but you're not yet a member and you'd be interested in listening in on that meeting, we'd welcome you to come. You're, you're welcome to, uh, to be here as well. So that's uh, this evening, uh, 5 p.m., uh, back at the church. Uh, also, uh, happy news uh, this last week. Uh, Matt Boffy, our assistant pastor, was engaged, got engaged uh, last week. And so let's uh, encourage Matt. Pretty exciting. So you can give him, give him thumbs up um, after the service. So Matt, we love you. We're excited for you. Um, so that's what we have for announcements. We're, uh, we're turning now we're to continue our study through uh, the book of uh, Revelation. We're in Revelation chapter 2, and um, the passage is a short one. We're going to be studying together there, starting in verse 8, and you can follow along in your bulletin. This is the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. You know that we are a weak So we have the remnant of sin in our lives, and we are often fearful. We thank you for your word that points us to our Savior, Jesus. And we pray that as uh, we draw close to him through his words in this passage, that you would give us hearts of trust, that we would trust what he says. We would receive those words, and that we would also respond with obedience And so we pray that you'd be our teacher now, Lord. We open our hearts to you. We long to hear from you and that you'd take these words and apply them to us by your Holy Spirit. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are studying together this summer the book of Revelation. This summer, we're just looking at the uh, first uh, three chapters. We'll continue uh, the study next summer. And uh, so far, we've looked at uh, chapter one, which gave kind of an introduction to the book and told us that Revelation was 
written to uh, seven of the earliest churches that were planted in, in what's today uh, Western Turkey. And uh, the, the next two chapters, chapters two and three of Revelation, are composed of seven letters that were written to those seven churches. and They were dictated uh, by Jesus. And today we are looking at the second of those seven letters. It's the letter to the church at, at the uh, city of Smyrna. And before we move uh, deeper into these letters, I just want to say a few words about, uh, of introduction. Uh, when um, we were planning this series for Revelation, I had thought, oh, you know, these are short, seven short letters to churches. This will be good for our congregation. Um, they're kind of challenging letters. They're, these churches are called to repent and their sins are named. And I thought, oh, that'd be good for our church to, to you know, be challenged by what Jesus says in these letters. But uh, as I began studying these letters, I realized that they're actually not addressed to churches. Uh, but they are, you'll notice how this passage begins. It says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This letter was written to the angel of the church there. And uh, the word angel means uh, messenger. And we know from the other letters that these messengers, these angels were not spiritual beings like heavenly angels, but they were humans, human messengers. So for example, when you read in this passage in verse nine, how it says, I know your tribulation and your poverty I'd always read that as, oh, I know the church's tribulation and the church's poverty, but that your is not a y'all. It's not y'all's poverty and tribulation. It's your singular. It's an individual. It's a leader of the church who is being addressed. And uh, it's a letter written to, this one is a letter written to a poor pastor who's not only financially vulnerable, but also is about to be thrown in prison. And also we'll find out next week that the angels of the churches are also called to repent. And we know that heavenly angels don't need to repent because they don't have sin. So it can't be a heavenly angel that's being talked to. It's, uh, but human pastors do need to re repent. Human pastors do need to be called out for their sins and challenged. And Jesus does do that in this passage. And actually in other places in the Bible, uh, humans are referred to as angels. John the Baptist was referred to as an angel. Or, or Malachi in the Old Testament, his name means my angel. That, uh, so uh, he was called an angel as well. So you could say that as we come to these letters, maybe they're not so much calling you all toward repentance, but... Me and Jonathan and Matt, the pastors of the church, that's who it's addressed to, but not so fast. There's one other thing that you'll notice what it says in this letter in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus says these things to the pastor, but it's also written to the church. And it's almost like the church is listening in as Jesus addresses the pastor and say, hey, what's the culture of your church community? What's the loyalty of your church community? And it's kind of a back and forth between uh, both of us. And so that's what we're reading into in the letters to these uh, seven churches. And so that's what I want to say by, by way of introduction. And, and today, as we look at the second letter to the, the church in Smyrna, I'd like to focus on the topic of fear. At the center of this letter that I just read to you from Revelation 2, Jesus says to this pastor in his church, in verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. This is a church that has much to fear. And fear is a, a relevant 
uh, topic for us. I mean, especially after this year, fear has become such a huge part of our culture. Actually, uh, just this last week, I was talking to someone who, they're not a member of our church, they live in another part of the country, and they said their experience in COVID was that every time they'd leave their house, it was like they were playing Russian roulette and put a gun to their head. I was like, wow. I mean, that's how many people have been experiencing for the last year. And so that raised the question, how should Christians think about fear? Well, I think that Jesus' words in this passage are both challenging, but also wise and loving. And so today, today I'd like to answer uh, three questions for us from this passage about fear. This is what they are. What are our deepest fears? What does Jesus say? What fears does Jesus point out and highlight in this passage? How does the Bible then talk about our fears? And then why should we not fear? What are our deepest fears? How does the Bible talk about them? And why should we not fear? And I I think our Lord has important insights for us today. So three questions uh, this morning from Revelation 2. The, The first is this. What are our deepest fears? What are the deepest fears that Jesus points out in this passage? And the letter to uh, the church in Smyrna begins in, in verse 9 with Jesus saying, I know your tribulation. And so this is a pastor in a church who, that have been suffering. And Jesus says, I know the suffering that you're experiencing. And, and suffering and fear are often closely tied to one another uh, Paul David Tripp is a counselor who has a book on suffering, and he has a whole chapter on fear and how fear is related to suffering. And this is, uh, this is what Tripp says. He says, suffering of whatever kind, with whatever it may bring your way, creates a focused awareness that is part of the burden that every sufferer bears. It causes you to notice what once would not have gotten your attention and to carry concerns that you'd never carried before. This new awareness becomes fertile soil for a new set of fears that have the power to shape the way you interpret and live your life. So what he says is that fear has a hyper-focus to it, a hyper-focused awareness of potential threats that are around us. And so that hyper-focus, it makes us self-protective. It makes us distance ourselves from people. It hardens us, you know, so that, you know, no one can kind of hurt us. And the hypervig- this hypervigilance takes such control of our minds that it's hard to focus on anything else. And so Tripp continues and he says, The level of wisdom of your interpretation of what's going on in your world and the sanity of your response to it are shaped, controlled, and directed by the focus of your mediation. So the thing that you are focused on is going gonna, is gonna to determine the sanity of how you respond to the world around you. And there are countless things in the world that can cause this kind of fear and supervigilance um, that are tied to our deep, deepest fears. So what, what are some of the things that Jesus highlights are our fears from this passage? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point out four of them. First thing we see in this passage is Jesus says, we fear being poor. We fear being poor. Verse 9, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. And my guess would be that the majority of Christians living in the world are poor, at least according, definitely according to American standards, we would uh, consider them poor. And this is a pastor in a church that are poor, and there's a tremendous amount of fear and anxiety that go with uh, poverty. Uh, Proverbs says, 
The rich man's wealth is his strong city. So wealth gives you a sense of security. Uh, The poverty of the poor is their ruin. Poverty makes you vulnerable in a hundred different ways. And one of the hardest things about poverty is also, it's not just the anxiety of like, how are my basic needs going to be met? But there's a lot of shame and embarrassment that goes with poverty as well. You know, Proverbs also says that the rich have many friends. Everyone wants to be friends with rich people. And, and then, but for the poor, that uh, even their friends will distance, them, distance themselves from them. And so we fear being in a situation where we cannot provide for ourselves, where we might be de- have to be dependent on others, or we're not sure whether others, there are even others that we can look to for help. Jesus says to these Christians, I know your poverty. He sees them. He, he, he loves them. But the shame of poverty is, is tied uh, to a second thing that we fear. Second, uh, Jesus says that we also fear rejection. Uh, we fear rejection. And you see in verse 9 again how it says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, if you were here with us for the first couple sermons on the book of Revelation, uh, one of the things we talked about is how the earliest churches were largely church splits because before Jesus came, there were basically churches all over the Roman Empire throughout the Mediterranean world, synagogues, people who worshiped God. And so when the disciples were going throughout the Roman Empire telling people about Jesus, they'd go into the synagogue and say, the Messiah you've been waiting for has come. It's Jesus. You should believe in him. And some of the people would believe in him and some of the people wouldn't. And the people who did would often be kicked out of the synagogue. And so they'd have to go start another synagogue, which was a church. They were basically the same thing, gatherings of people who studied God's word and worshiped God. Now, I want you to imagine growing up in the synagogue in Smyrna. And, you know, it's a church like ours here. And, uh, but one thing about our church, is our, church only, our church has only been here 12 years. So we don't have generations of people who this has been their church. But maybe that synagogue in Smyrna would have, it could have been there for hundreds of years. And you've got grandkids and you've got cousins and you've got second cousins. You've got this whole family and you grew up in this synagogue. And they said the most important thing is your loyalty to your people and keeping the traditions of your people. And then you come and you say, I believe in Jesus. I want to follow him. And they reject you. And those Sabbath meals where they would all get together and you get together with all the cousins and you did that every Saturday and no longer you're invited. You've been rejected. And that whole network of community that you were so dependent on is no longer that network any, lo- any longer. This still happens today. This has happened to some of you. Where to believe in Jesus, your family said, you're betraying us by you, you becoming a Christian. You've betrayed our family and what our family believes in and what we're about. And maybe you felt uh, ostracized. That hits at some of our deepest fears in life. Some of our deepest fears is that we would disappoint our family and that they would see us as a failure. And Jesus says to this church that he loves, I know the rejection you are experiencing. And uh, by the way, if I could just make one comment about this passage, it's important to remember that the earliest Christians were largely Jews. Actually, for the, at least for the first 200 years of the church, but maybe as much as the first 400 years, the Christians were largely 
largely Jews. And that's important because passages like this one have sometimes been used for anti-Semitic purposes where it talks about the synagogue of Satan as if synagogues are, you know, are satanic. And uh, to do that is to forget that Jesus himself was a Jew. And John, who's writing this down, was Jew. And most of the Christians that they're writing to were all Jews. And what this is mainly talking about is there was a split that happened among the Jewish people about whether Jesus was the Messiah. But the rejection of fellow Jews is intermingled with a third fear. So we have, we have the fear of poverty. We have a fear of rejection, rejection from our family especially, are, are some of our deepest fears. A third thing is, is Jesus says we fear political turmoil. We fear political turmoil. And you see there in, in verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now this is not likely coming from the Jewish persecution. It would have been the Roman Empire that would have thrown them in prison. And the tribulation of the first Christians came from two sides. It was both from their family and the, and the Jews that, that, uh, that had rejected them. And it was also came from the Roman Empire, which makes sense. Because when you read the Gospels and Jesus himself is being persecuted, who's there when Jesus is dying on the cross? Well, it's his fellow Jews who are saying, let him be crucified. And then it's Pontius Pilate, who's the Roman governor, who puts him to death. And then when you read about the Apostle Paul, when he's planting churches, it's his fellow Jews that are persecuting him. And, it's, and then he goes on trial with the Romans. And so Revelation, when it's talking, it's, it's the same thing that the rest of the New Testament is about. It's written to the same early Christians who are experiencing those same persecutions. And Jesus says his disciples are not above their master. If he experienced political persecution, his people will too. And of course, political turmoil is a huge temptation for fear among Christians in our generation. You know, when you think of fear being a hypervigilance about something, a hyper-focus, I mean, how many of us in the past year have had to say at times, I just can't go on social media or I can't watch the news because it's, my mind is getting obsessed with political things that are happening in our culture. I realize it's not good for my heart. It's not good for my mind. I need to kind of extract myself from it. And so when something is getting a hyper-focus from us, it's, it's often an indication that it's coming from a place of fear. But Jesus says to this church that he loves, I know the political threats that surround you. And so there's poverty, there's rejection from, you know, the family, there's political turmoil, but there's one last fear that's maybe the most significant, and I think that some people would say is really the fear that's under every fear for all of us, is that fourth, Jesus says, we fear death. In the second part of verse 10, he says, be faithful unto death. It's a really amazing thing. I, it actually just struck me. I feel like the, as I was just reading it, I, this didn't strike me in the first two services, but just reading that phrase when I was reading this passage, Jesus is preparing them. He's saying, you're going you're gonna to have to die. Get yourself ready to be faithful to me unto death. You're going to have to face that soon. Jesus says to this church that he loves, I know that some of you are going to die. And death is a major theme of, of Revelation uh, at the end of the book, those that are enthroned with Jesus are the martyrs, the people who died for the, the, their devotion and loyalty to Jesus. And the Gospels tell us the story about how Jesus 
spoke the truth and he loved people and then he was crucified and he was raised from the dead and then he ascended into heaven. He was seated at the right hand of the Father. So when we get to the end of the New Testament in the book of Revelation, Jesus is already in heaven. That's where Revelation takes place. Jesus is enthroned and now it's about his people who are now going to follow that same path where they're going to speak the truth and they're going to love their neighbors and they're going to suffer and be persecuted and then they are going to be enthroned with him and reign with him. And some of you might say, yes, death is a serious fear of mine. For how many of you is that? One of the major purposes of Revelation is to prepare God's people for martyrdom. Being a disciple means I will die for Jesus. I'm not afraid of death. The moment I die, I'm going to be with him in paradise. And every Sunday when we come here to worship, basically that's what we're doing. We say, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We say that in the Apostles' Creed. We're saying every week, I'm preparing my heart. I am not afraid of death. I'm not going to live my life afraid of death. Because I will be with the Lord. And I'm not afraid to give my life for Jesus if that was ever called to me. You, we have to prepare ourselves for that. And I, Paul Fredette, who's a member of our church, he once said to me, there's maybe no greater tragedy than going through life without something you are willing to die for. There's no greater tragedy than for a human to go through life and to not love something so much they would die for it. And of course, for many of us, it's maybe, oh, I would die for my family or I'd, I'd die for my friends. Above all, we, our call as Christians is that we would die for Jesus. And if it came for that, I'm ready, Lord, because I would be with you in paradise. In these short verses, Jesus says he knows and sees our deepest fears around poverty and shame and rejection and political turmoil and ultimately death. But the Bible's not kind of stoic about fears. You know, just you shouldn't feel fear. You shouldn't feel those things. Jesus says, I know your tribulation. He doesn't minimize it or tri trivialize it. He says to his people, I see what you're suffering and the suffering of Jesus' people is important to him. And so we have to understand that before we're ready to move to the second question. So we've looked at what our deepest fears are that Jesus names. So how does the Bible then talk about fear? And basically the Bible says the same thing throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, repeated over and over again. And Jesus here in the final book of the Bible repeats the same thing that's been said throughout the Bible. In verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Do not fear is always, Jesus says that over and over. I've heard that that's actually the most repeated command in the New Testament. It's the one that Christians need to hear the most, or maybe that humans need to hear the most, is that you should not fear. Now, if you are a person who struggles with anxiety or, or fearfulness, you might hear that command, don't fear, and say, well, I wish I could not fear. It's, but anxiety is just in my body, and I wish I could turn it off. I hate that it's there. Um, how do I just obey a command to not fear? Well, I think that we should think of this command like we think of the other, other commands in the Bible. So, you know, you take, for example, the Bible says, husbands, love your wives. And let's say there's a husband who says, you know, I've never been shown affection 
I, I didn't grow up being shown affection. I've never experienced that. I don't know how to like open my heart and to cherish my wife. And so how am I supposed, I can't just start doing that if I've never experienced it. What would you say to that husband? What would say first mercy, like that's sad to have never experienced affection and to not know what that's like. But you're gonna have to learn. If there's one thing you're going to do in your life is you're going to have to learn to love the people that are close to you and open your heart to them. And it's more important than your job. It's more important than your hobbies. If there's one thing that is a skill that you need to develop, and it may take a lifetime, it might take years or decades, but if there's one project to give yourself to, that is the kind of person that Jesus is making you into. If you are a fearful or anxious person, that's the same thing. What's the first thing we would say to you? Mercy. I'm, that is hard. And yet you need to know the kind of person that Jesus intends to make you into. The mercy of the Bible is that God knows that our flesh, our sinful and wounded selves are inhibited from obeying these commands. And being of a disciple of Jesus means I'm going to learn about myself. I'm going to study God's word. I'm going to pray I'm going to cast my anxieties on the Lord. And you might say, oh, you know, casting your anxieties on the Lord doesn't just take away your anxiety. Well, you don't want to do less than casting your anxieties on the Lord. I mean, maybe some other tools might be helpful, but it's going to include casting your anxieties on the Lord. It's going to involve taking small risks and watching God prove his faithfulness. But Jesus is giving a vision of the kind of people that he wants to make us into as people that do not fear. And so how does the Bible talk about fear? Is it says that he wants to make us into people who don't fear. That's his goal for us. And um, actually, I, one trick I've, I've learned this, this summer, John Matta, who's our, our intern that was up here earlier in the service, he has a, a trick that he does when he's doing something that he's afraid of, like jumping off a cliff into some water. He will decide, okay, I'm going to do this. And then he says, three, two, one. And he has, a, he has made a vow that if he ever says, three, two, one, he has to do the thing at the end of it. And so, uh, so three, two, one, jump. And uh, I've been trying this out on things. Like if I have a hard phone call I need to make, three, two, one, call. All right, we're doing it. You know, or if I have to give a talk and I'm not really ready, it's like, well, three, two, one, walk up there. And, and I, you know, you might think that's silly, but in those small things to realize that God is with you and things that really, those small things cause a lot of anxiety and a lot of fears and to see God was with me and he was faithful. And uh, we have to start with the small things if we are going to grow and to be prepared for the big things. Now you might hear the Bible say, do not fear and think, well, why should I not fear? There's a lot of things to fear in this world. Why, why shouldn't we fear? And you might assume that the answer will be, well, because God will protect you. He has good plans for you, and he only purposes good towards you. That's true. But you might interpret that to mean that uh, he won't let anything painful happen to you. That is the exact opposite of what Jesus says in this passage, because the whole sentence of verse 10 is important here. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. He doesn't say, don't worry, I would never let anyone throw you into prison. He says, I know that they're going to throw you into prison, and Jesus is not afraid of that. And so we should not be afraid of it. If he's not afraid of it, 
This is not out of his control. It's not out of his plans. Then we should not be afraid of it either. He says, uh, you are going to suffer, but you're going to make it to the other side. Don't be afraid. You'll survive. Even if you die, you're going to survive. Like we're going to, you can't die, Jesus says, if you're a believer. Your life cannot be taken from you. And we live in a world that is filled with dangers. You and I, we are woundable animals. You know, you think about there's some animals that have the hard part on the outside, exoskeleton, I think it's called. We, our hard part is on the inside, and we're just covered with soft flesh. I mean, it's so easy to hurt a person, and we've got nerves all over. Like, it is so easy to cause someone excruciating pain. And we live, and then in a world that is filled with dangers as these woundable creatures. And I think a part of our Christian growth is developing a deeper pain, retolerance, uh, pain tolerance to become the kind of people that for longer periods of time I can suffer and, uh, and I can still remain soft toward God and I can still love people because often suffering embitters us and it hardens us. And if you can suffer and still stay soft toward, toward God, that's the kind of people that Jesus intends to make us into. Now, that still leaves a question. So if Jesus is not going to spare us from suffering, that's not the reason. The reason to not fear is not because he's going to spare us from suffering. What is then the reason to, uh, to not fear? And that leads uh, to our last point. And so what we've said so far is that Jesus knows our deepest fears, poverty and shame and rejection and political turmoil and even death itself. And the Bible is simple in how it talks about these fears. It simply says, do not fear. Even the suffering you will have to endure. Don't fear it. But why? And so that's our final question. Why should we not fear? And I want to highlight two reasons from this passage. First, because we have riches that we cannot see. We have riches that we cannot see. And you see there in verse 9 how Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. You know, on the outside, or we might look at ourselves or other people might look at us and we feel like we are impoverished and we don't have what we need. And he says, who you really are is you're immensely wealthy. You're immensely rich. You and I are children with an inheritance. We are sons and daughters of the king of all creation. The Lord of all nations and the ruler of innumerable angels is our father. And it doesn't matter what you are facing right now. You are facing it as royalty. That is who you are. That's what God's word says. That's what the Lord of heaven and earth says. And you know how it is when someone comes from a, a wealthy family and they can kind of take risks financially. And it's like they always know, well, kind of mom and dad's got their back if anything goes wrong. That's you. You have a father who owns everything. That's how you should live your life. And so Jesus says the key to fear is to know that you've been adopted by God himself. You are a part of his family. He's, you're going to be taken care of. Part of your inheritance is suffering. That's part of what it comes with the deal. But you have riches beyond your imagination that you cannot see right now, but you have to take Jesus' word for it, that that inheritance is yours. And it's been secured by his blood. So the first reason to not fear is because we have riches we can't see. The second reason 
is because we know how the story ends. We know how this story ends. And when you read a story, a book about someone who's afraid in the story, and they don't know how the story's going to end. We know how the story is. We've read the ending, and we're in the middle of it. How much more courage would the character have if they knew the ending of the story? Look at what this verse says, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus is the first and the last. He was there in the beginning when the creation was made. He will be at the end of history. He will have the final word of history. And his death and resurrection, when Jesus died and his body was raised from the dead, he was healed, is a preview of what God will do for all of Jesus' people. And so let me ask you this. If your life followed the path of Jesus, is that a good life? Let's say this life was suffering. Let's say your whole life was suffering. Let's say it was letdown after letdown. Hardship, physical pain, emotional pain. And then at the end of that life, God vindicated you. And, and before angels and all the nations said, this is my beloved child. And, and then gave, healed everything and wiped away every tear. And then you spent eternity with him. Would that be a good life? Would you accept that story? I'm telling you, that's the only good life. There isn't another one. God says, this is what we are a part of. And so in verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let this sink in deeply. Let this be deep in your heart, that this is what we are a part of. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is talking about the final judgment when Jesus comes to wipe away all sin in the world and make all things new. If you patiently endure the suffering, that is if you simply don't abandon Jesus, you will enter that new world. A world where there's no more sin or sorrow or suffering. A world where there's no more poverty or rejection or political turmoil. A world where death itself has been destroyed. And the goodness of the glory of the Lord will shine on your face like the warmth of the sun. Why should you not fear? Because Jesus knows your tribulation. He knows your deepest fears of poverty, of shame, of rejection, of death. And he has bid you, do not fear. He is sufficient for you. He is the first and the last. You've been adopted into his family. He has made you rich with an inheritance beyond your imagination that you cannot see yet, and he is creating a new world where you will one day be with him forever. Cherish this hope. Make this your hyper-focus so we don't fear because of him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you, Lord, uh, for how deep your word is, how um, your spirit, your, the light of your word searches the deepest parts of who we are. And Lord, you know all the fears that are present in this room. And Lord, we thank you that uh, in the midst of them, you love us. 
You know us, you see us, you treasure us, and you challenge us. You call us to growth. And Lord, what a dignity even that you would command us that we would be faithful even unto death. And that the one who conquers would be given the crown of life. To think that that's even possible for us. And uh, so Lord, we thank you that even in our weakness, you would give us such a calling. And um, Lord, we pray that you would train our hearts even more and more deeply that we are your sons and daughters. We have an immense inheritance, and may we wait for it patiently. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.